I think it's a really important conversation because there are so many cultural stories to tell around technology. There's not just one, you know, flattened or narrow kind of understanding of technology that is um, experienced or known or narrated by absolutely everybody. I'm your host, Marian Kilgore. Joining me is Kat Youngnickel, a senior lecturer in the sociology department at Goldsmiths University of London. Her research explores mobilities, gender, technology cultures, maker communities, and visual and inventive methods. She's the author of the recently published book, Bikes and Bloomers, Victorian Women Inventors and Their Extraordinary Cycle Wear. And I think you can learn so much from um, really getting into other kind of stories and often alternate stories by um, individuals or social groups that might have very different understandings or interpretations of technology and can tell you a lot about how society is changing or where it's come from and we're replicating similar kind of ideas in different ways. So in the time period that you researched for your for your recent book, uh, it was Victorian Britain, and what was sort of the general attitude around bicycles, and how interested were people about bicycles at the time? Um, very interested. You know, um, <clears throat> a bicycle, a cycling craze was sweeping through the nation in the 1890s. It really, um, it was kind of called the craze and the boom at the time, incredibly exciting. Because while the bicycle had been around for much of the last century in various iterations, it was really the safety bicycle with its evenly matched wheels, very similar to what we ride today, that really captured the imagination of the nation. And, you know, technology was also just a very exciting thing in the 1890s um, uh, lots of you know it just was a very inventive time for many different reasons uh, but it really spoke to this idea of you know um, a modern citizen about being kind of um, very progressive and about progress and about the future so there are lots of ways in which people were adapting and adopting kind of new technologies into their everyday lives and technology of course I speak very broadly about you know here um, we're talking about the bicycle as a new technology but my research is very much oriented around cycle wear and I think about clothing that equipped different bodies to actually use and ride these new technologies as being technology itself as well. Why were safety bicycles, the, the sort of modern two similar wheels as opposed to the penny farthings with the ginormous, hilariously <laughs> large wheel, um, why were these getting adopted so vigorously as a as a technology at the time? I think because it offered um, an opportunity for more people to ride these bicycles, you know, um, rather than the penny farthing, which was uh, really an incredibly kind of daring and dangerous and very exciting um, bicycle. I actually own two of them, so I I know um, how exciting they can be. But they are they very much kind of limited the range of people who could be riding and where you could be riding them. So. Suddenly, the kind of safety bicycle emerged, um, and not only was it kind of a bit easier to ride, but also it became um, more economically viable for a broader range of people, even though initially it was still very much middle and upper classes. Um, it became easier to kind of store and uh, maintain than you can imagine a high-wheeled um, bicycle or a high-wheeled tricycle. And it really did, um, you know, open up lots of um 
kind of practical but also imaginaries about um, who you could be and where you could go. So it offered such excitement and thrills but also the opportunity for adventure and independence and freedom of movement, which was particularly important for women. Um, so although, you know, both men and women eagerly kind of took up cycling, they experienced it very differently. And for women, that's why I've been focusing on this story in particular, because I think it really is, you know, a fasc- provides fascinating insight into the ways in which they creatively and critically responded to what they considered to be restrictions to their freedom of movement in this time of radical kind of technological change. And they certainly didn't want to be left behind. So anytime we have a a technology that suddenly becomes very popular and very ubiquitous, you know, like cell phones or bicycles, um, there's, there's almost inevitably discussions in popular culture and in the media about what does this mean for social structures? What does this mean for society? How was Victorian, uh, England dealing with that aspect of bicycling? Oh, it was absolutely fascinating. And I think this is why it's kind of captured my imagination for quite a number of years now. Um, so women were very keen cyclists like men. Um, but, you know, society's views about women's bodies, about ideas around feminine mobility in public space, um, around citizenship were really kind of complicated and highly regulated in relation to women and very differently to men. Because up until kind of the mid 1880s, middle and upper class women women's bodies in Victorian society were very much defined by the moral responsibility of the caring and bearing of children and the kind of management and organisation of the household, so very much oriented around the home. They weren't really encouraged into education or business or politics and very often chaperoned out in public. And even exercise by many medical professionals was deemed unnecessary for, and even unhealthy for women. Um, some felt that they should preserve their limited energy resources for these really important reproductive purposes. Um, however, of course, women, um, very, lots of women were really enthusiastic cyclists. But again, kind of their ordinary fashions for uh, for middle and upper class women reflected and reproduced a number of these kind of social ideals. You know, they were quite broad, but ostensibly kind of comprised up to seven pounds of petticoats, long skirts, binding corsets, tight tailored jackets, fitted blouses, veils and more. And you can imagine, you know, how vastly incompatible this was with the moving machine of a bicycle. So the bicycle really kind of draws attention to these restrictions to women's freedom of movement, not only kind of socially and kind of ideologically, you know, what is the role of women in society, but also materially and physically. So there's so many kind of um, levels and layers to kind of interrogate this and look at the ways in which um, women in particular, but lots of people responded to this because once women had experienced the unparalleled, you know, excitement, freedom and independence of the bicycle, there was kind of no going back. So they had to address what was really considered to be the dress problem, which wasn't just physical, but was also social. So... It, your book mentions that it's around this time that we also get uh, the the drop frame or the the lady style of bicycle with instead of the straight bar the sloping bar. And so how did women's participation change bicycle designs and what did people really think about this the the drop frame style bicycle? <laughs> 
Well, yeah, lots of people, um, uh, you know, responded to this problem, this uh, this issue about women really wanting to cycle and it becoming, it's quite difficult with the clothing that they were wearing as well as, you know, socially, how people, some people were threatened by this idea of the woman out in public doing these kind of new independent things. But just in particular, in relation to the bicycle, of course, many people saw this as a great opportunity to expand the cycling, you know, market, you know, he was a whole new group of people who would buy these machines. So one way of responding to the dress problem was by fixing the bike. So that became the step through bike was a way of, you know, keeping some of the, some of those flapping materials, you know, out of the way of the wheels and the dress guard, another way, the short nose saddle, um, easier for women in lots of, you know, skirts and petticoats to actually mount a bicycle. Um, and of course, you know, to some degrees they worked, um, but they weren't without their critics. And I do write about this in the book about how many women were a bit like, hang on, I'm already wearing all of these cumbersome materials while trying to ride a bicycle. And now you've made this bicycle kind of heavier, which was often the case once you've added on chain guards and skirt guards. And many lamented kind of how compromised the ride was when you took away that top bar. It became actually heavier and just not as stiff or responsive as a diamond frame bicycle. So some women were really quite dissatisfied with these adaptions that were made to the bicycle to enable them to ride. And that's why some of them um, responded to the dress problem by creatively attempting to um, invent uh, radical new forms of cycle wear. Yeah, so your book specifically looks at uh, five cycling garments that were patented by women in the 1890s. Um, Can you give our listeners an idea of what they were and why you chose those five out of all of the patents you ran across? Yes. Well, um, after kind of like reading a lot about how women were dissatisfied by their clothes, and this was also, I must say, about a period of time with the dress reformers were really gaining a lot more traction. And dress reformers were really trying to address this problem of women's clothing. Um, And they were um, that um, radical dress um, again, it comprised a whole range of styles, but it was ostensibly um, removing this long and layered skirt and petticoats uh, or sh- shortening it and wearing a pair of bloomers or knickerbockers. And although that was much safer and more comfortable to ride a bicycle, um, it actually exposed wearers to um, quite a lot of uh, social violence, you know, verbal or even physical assault, because it really polarized society. He was a woman that was not only kind of venturing out on her own and um, into men's kind of lifestyles and privileges, but perchance into their wardrobes as well. So it really identified a woman cyclist and became swiftly this kind of um, um, symbol of um, uh, quite a radical kind of um, female uh, image, you know, moving around in public space in very different ways. So it really kind of became this symbol of um, potential kind of social change. And the thing I wanted to say was just um, some parts of society were threatened by the fact that women were out there carving out new feminine modes of mobility, unchaperoned and at speed at new times and at new spaces. So, you know, this visual of this uh, woman cycling and particularly in identifiable cycle wear became um, – uh, you know, the side of much broader debate about women's role in society. So you had to be quite brave to not only ride a bike, but look like a cyclist. So in the patent archive, um, there's lots of 
treasure about how women responded um, by inventing different forms of cycle wear to enable women to ride their bikes safely and comfortably. But in particular, what I became struck by was a theme um, which was about convertible cycle wear. And what I found so fascinating about this is that these were garments that ambitiously aimed for both respectable fashion and cycle wear. So it wouldn't give away the fact that you were about to ride your bicycle until you got close to your bicycle and then you would convert these garments into safe and comfortable cycle wear and then convert them back again. So these inventors engineered technical systems into the very infrastructure of their skirts that enabled wearers to secretly switch from streetwear to cycle wear and back again, um, which I just found fascinating. And in some ways, these are challenges that many contemporary cyclists are still trying to grapple with. You know, how do you wear something on the bike that works well, but also doesn't really, you know, overtly identify you as a cyclist when you're away from your bicycle. So I found these kind of inventions particularly interesting. I have to admit that that's part of how I ran across your book is I was trying to find cycling compatible skirts with pockets that uh, I could also wear in the office. Exactly. Which is challenging. This is a 120-year-old idea. (laughs) (laughs) Not new. Yeah. So, so some of these, I, some of these uh, pieces of clothing are quite technical. Um, Could you, could you describe, uh, maybe let's just start with the, the Bygrave convertible skirt. Yes. Um, Alice Louisa Bygrave was a dressmaker from um, – uh, she grew up in Brixton, South London. Um, no, she yeah, Brixton, South London, um, and also lived with her family in um, – no, so let me say that again. Alice Louisa Bygrave was a dressmaker from London. Um, she grew up in um, her parents' watch and clock making store in Chelsea and also lived in Brixton in South London. And she designed, and what's really interesting about the watch and clock making is that um, she designed a skirt which um, uh, she felt needed a pulley system sewn into the front and the back uh, inside seams of the skirt, which is really, I think, fascinating considering her kind of upbringing. From the outside, it just looks like a very simple A-line full-length skirt, but on the inside, she's got weights sewn into the hems, stitched uh, channels in the front and the back seams, wax cords and a series of buttonholes through which uh, these cords are threaded, hidden until you um, get close to your bicycle and then you pull on these cords and they rush the front of the skirt up high and out of the way of the wheels and you do the same for the back you tie it off and it creates what she was calling a delightful kind of festooning effect which to be honest I had no idea what that meant until I made the skirt and then suddenly went look at that it's festooning really nicely (laughs) over the hips it really works it clears the skirt from the wheels it reveals a little bit of the bloomers underneath but not too much and because it was called the Bygrave Quick Change Cycling Skirt and had weights in the hem, as soon as you get off the bike, release the cord, it drops completely down to the ground and conceals what you've been doing or your um, cycling intentions. And then there's four other ones in your book. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about what the 
Julia Gill's uh, semi-skirt is about. Julia Gill uh, was a court dressmaker also from London, but North London, and she had an 1895 patent for what she called a cycling costume for ladies, which is very a very simple title for a pretty fascinating um, artifact. Again, an ordinary A-line skirt, um, but it has this kind of lower flounce. So it has this kind of um, slightly overlaid double hem. And you look closely at it, um, and the under – she makes a particular point, which is really interesting when you're reading it, and you didn't re- I didn't really understand why until I'd made it again. The underside of the flounce, she said, should be the same material as the jacket, whereas the rest of the skirt – she could be a different material. And it was like, oh, well, that's interesting. Perhaps she's just a – she's a dressmaker, so she's making a particular kind of, like, material recommendation. But what happens is when the cyclist – when the uh, the lady gets close to a bicycle, would reach down to the bottom of the skirt underneath one of these um, first flounces um, – and underneath is a, a ribbon or a cord that's threaded through a series of rings that are very concealed. You gather the skirt up to your waist at that point and tie it at the waist, you know, gathering through these rings at, at um, with a bow or a knot. And because it has this double flounce, one is tucked under and the one that is the same material as the jacket remains there and becomes this what's called a double peplum, just a double layer that completely matches the jacket and looks like a continued, you know, garment, but it is a shortened one and just becomes um, a much shorter roll-up from the the ground up to your knees. So, again, it clears the, skirt, the ground incredibly easily, enabling the woman to cycle. She would get off her skirt, release these cords, and what is effectively pretty much for those who've lived through the 80s fashions, pretty much a bubble skirt. It would then drop straight back down to the ground again. And then we've got Henrietta Mueller and her three-piece cycling suit. She was a fascinating woman to um, investigate. Some of the, of course, as per the history of uh, women's um, uh, inventions, uh, you, I had to piece together lots of fragmented materials across lots of different archives to try and understand where the, who they were, where they came from, what motivated or influenced them. And some were easier than others. And Frances Henriette Muller was certainly one of those because she was a gentlewoman from Maidenhead out in Buckshire. Um, she was a passionate women's rights activist. She was originally from Chile. Um, Um, but moved to uh, the UK with her family when she was young. But she spoke six languages. She was educated in Girton uh, not long after it first opened um, up to women. Uh, She... um, she advocated for, um, uh, of course, women's representation um, and kind of refused to pay her tax because she felt she wasn't represented and was actually um, taken, uh, arrested for that. She didn't believe that women had enough um, of a voice in the public sphere, so set up the Women's Herald, the first women's penny paper that um, employed women to write articles about um, all sorts of things, not just some kind of women's stories, but just getting a different perspective, and paid them equal wages for equal work. She really was incredibly progressive. And um, it therefore isn't, it doesn't come as any surprise that, you know, because cycling was seen as such an, you know, an amazing kind of vehicle of women's emancipation, and she saw also this issue of cycle wearers being 
an opportunity to fit women's bodies, you know, better with this new technology. She also designed um, a patent for um, a cycling um, improvements in ladies' garments for cycling and other purposes in 1896. And this... Um, interestingly enough, out of all the patterns I was looking at, is not just for one garment, but it's for three pieces, three full pieces of an entire cycling suit. Because clearly, you know, Henrietta Muller didn't think you could smash the patriarchy with one skirt. You had to have all three pieces. <laughs> um, so it is a three-piece convertible suit made up of a tailored coat, a long, again, A-line skirt. And um, what's really interesting um is the she's got an uh, an all-in-one um, undergarment. So she even thought about what women were wearing underneath. You know, you could have a convertible skirt, but what if you're still wearing, you know, a bloomer and, you know, tights and um, gaiters and um, a blouse and all sorts of other things. So she even streamlined the bloomer and the blouse into an all-in-one um, knickerbocker gar garment, which, again, looks very contemporary in terms of this period we're living through with onesies, for example. Um, but her long skirt converts in the fact that it has, very simply, loops sewn underneath the hem at different um different spacings that loop up to buttons that are sewn on the waistband. And so it catches, you know, at the waist, at the front, at the sides and at the back. And then this long three-quarter jacket folds over the top of that, revealing just the edges of your bloomers underneath. Again, a remarkable kind of quick change cycling suit. And sort of second to last, uh, the one that I found it, remarkably simple but quite intriguing is, is the cycling skirt cape uh, combination. <laughs> Yes, um, Mary Elizabeth and Sarah Peace were sisters, again, gentlewomen from Yorkshire, so up north. Um, their 1896 pattern was for an improved skirt, available also as a cape for lady cyclists. So, yeah, remarkably simple. It's a skirt that also becomes a cape. But I think what they've done, and, and it's um, they really brought together um, a lot of fashions of the period, as well as kind of quite a radical notion of taking the skirt completely away from the body, um, but enabling it to be put back on again should you feel at all vulnerable or should you be riding into a place where you might not be particularly sure as to what socially you might be encountering um, and they're also incidentally the youngest kind of patents patentees of the period that I was kind of studying so they're really bringing you know this kind of different kind of view on the ways in which you know women could be moving being in or moving through public space and the fashionable kind of aspect of this is that they um um, it's the the waist of the skirt is quite a um, a wide waisted you know round skirt. They said it should already be like six inches from the ground, so already it's a little bit radical in the fact it's shorter and it's a full circular skirt. But then when you take this skirt up uh, away from the waist and you um, up to your neck, that hi that high waist becomes a high ruched collar cape so it gathers at the neck and it's really quite dramatic and um quite um quite an impressive kind of garment even though it's incredibly simple you could wear it completely wrapped around or you can flick it very dramatically over your shoulders as well and they said in the patent that should um you desire it not at all on your body the the cords that are threaded through the waistband um could then be used to secure it to your handlebars so, again, just the, the kind of thought 
um, that went into all of these um, um, were really you could discern some of it from reading the patent, but a lot of it really revealed itself to us when we were making and wearing the garments. Yeah, and we'll we'll link to the the project website in the show notes, but where you've described some of the uh, some of the thinking and the prototyping that had to go into your activities to build these skirts, I, it becomes clear that the the patents don't really reveal all of the secrets of how to build these. They're definitely conceptual sort of documents. Yes, they do provide. I mean, the thing about patents, which um, was one of the reasons that we made these things, actually there's two main reasons we made the garments. First, there aren't any material um, examples of these in any of the museums and archives that we've found so far. So one of the first reasons to make them was that we just wanted to see them in action. We wanted to kind of see them up close to see how they were made, how they were repaired, how they were broken, you know, um, what that might that tell us um, about the person who wore them, you know, how they were worn, um, you know, to really kind of interview them. You know, I'm used to interviewing live people, so I just thought, oh, we can at least get the garments and have a chat to them and see what they can tell me about, you know, the people who've lived a hundred and, you know, over a century ago. But we couldn't find any of these materials. There was lots of other kind of women's sportswear in museums and galleries, and I found those incredibly fascinating to get up close to, but I couldn't find any of these. And there's lots of reasons for why they're not there. You know, first of all, you know, cycle wear, as you know, many of us who cycle know, you know, gets worn out. And very rarely do you look at your old kind of cycling nicks and think the National Gallery needs <laughs> needs those once I'm done with them. <laughs> you know, so there's certainly a way of which they're potentially not seen as very valuable. Um, as per gendered norms of the time, women's invention hasn't been seen as very valuable in the past. So there's also just not recognizing that. And the fact that these women were deliberately concealing these technologies um, underneath, you know, in the very infrastructure of dresses, you know, in some cases you could say they did their job so well that um, you don't really know the treasure that you have unless you're specifically looking for it. Um, and um, we were just wanting to see these in action. You know, how did they enable or constrain bodies in different ways? How did they actually work? And even if they'd been in museums and galleries, the chances of anyone, a lovely curator, letting me put one of these on and go for a ride, very, very unlikely. And to be honest, my, you know, 2018 um, female frame is not going to fit into a, you know, an 1890s, you know, cycling costume. I'm quite committed to this project, but I've not been wearing a corset for it. So lots of reasons to make them. And, of course, the patents are, um, you know, they're, they're fascinating design objects um, because they really, um, they get us closer to the people that have lived in the past because they provide not only descriptions of the inventor, you know, um, what she was concerned with or worried about at the time, um, what the problem was that she was attempting to solve in her solution, um, who she was designing for, the materials, the technologies to use, where they'd be used. Like they really provide insightful glimpses into the socio-cultural context of the time. But they also provide step-by-step -step instructions for future users to replicate their ideas. So we figured we've got these instructions. Why not make some? So um, we followed their step-by-step -step instructions, made a lot of mistakes along the way because, yes, there's certainly a lot of kind of uh, leaps that you have to make. You know, sometimes it's about that kind of um, historic language. 
Sometimes it's about materials or processes that we don't have or don't really understand. But also, I think, you know, there's a lot of interpretation that can take place. And there's no way that I'm saying what we've done is the perfect, you know, um, exact iteration, but rather we've attempted to make them. And in the process, we've really come to understand some of the incredible complexity and nuance um, and detail in these designs and the fact that they really did work. And I think that's, you know, an, uh, an amazing thing when you're just reading something to then actually make it, put it on, transform it on your own body. You know, there's an absolute delight in that. And I see that whenever I'm performing in costume and show people as well, them, these garments transforming. And they really must have, not only do they kind of delight contemporary audiences, but at the time they must have really just provided this new, exciting imaginary for women about who they could be in, in public and how they could have different choices about being in and moving through public space with new technologies. Yeah, so the the last skirt we haven't described is the Hyde yes. Park safety skirt. And then I'd like to get into a discussion about like why why clothing is a technology. Because it's, okay. it's so commonplace that I think it's easy to forget that it is. And especially yes. especially these designs. Yeah, so the Mary Ann Ward um, patent, um, it was, uh, she was um, very aligned to uh, the kind of dress reform community and also the cycling community and lived out in Bristol. And she lodged an 1897 patent for improvements in ladies' skirts for cycling. But it was kind of more colloquially known as the Hyde Park safety skirt. Um, and the reason that we know about this is that uh, it was written about um, in um, by uh, Lady Harberton, who was one of the leaders of um, the Rational Dress Society, and she wrote about it um, in correspondence um, with um, the committee of um, uh, key people within uh, the community and also um, wrote about it in the Rational Dress Gazette. So it was a really interesting, I think, artifact, like many of these, that seemed to offer, an, you know, this kind of middle ground between people who really wanted to cycle but just felt it was incredibly dangerous to be riding in kind of conventional, ordinary women's um, clothing but perhaps weren't completely... Um, you know, for many reasons, you know, weren't able to wear, you know, the full kind of rational dress kind of bloomer suit in public. But this became a way of, of you know, inhabiting this ground between the two um, and enabling women to still engage in these new, you know, mobile technologies and public space in a new way. But it also speaks to, I think, I did, I, I read a lot more about, you know, these public spaces like Hyde Park and how lots of people would go to them to ride their bicycles showing off not only kind of the cultural cachet of having a bicycle and a new cycling suit and the leisure time to enjoy it, but also just engaging kind of, you know, so socially, you know, and how wonderful it was to be riding with lots of people um, in these new spaces, having these kind of new conversations with new technologies um, and experiencing public space in a different way. So the... The technology of clothing. Oh, do you know what I haven't done? I haven't even explained what that skirt was. Should oh, I right. tell you? Yes, we should. We should do <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. So the Marianne Ward's um, skirt um, again was um, an A-line full-length skirt. 
are very simple, but this time it has two rows of buttons running down both seams on the side of the skirt. Um, and it had these waist straps which were hidden inside until the wearer revealed them. Um, and they had buttonholes on them, but they had fewer buttonholes than the buttons on the side of the skirt. So the idea was that you would just tether these straps to um, to every second button or uh, every third button, depending on how high you wanted to raise the skirt from the ground. And again, it does kind of a sim uh, similar kind of festooning or ruching effect to the Alice Bygrave convertible skirt, but it does it at the sides. Um, and then, and I think possibly it became this kind of Hyde Park um, safety skirt because it wasn't as kind of like dramatically um, transformative like the um, Julia Gill skirt, for example, that turned into this kind of high bubble skirt, but rather you could kind of um, catch these buttons quite um, subtly by the side of the road, for example, without revealing too much of anything. But it still cleared the skirt from the wheels and looked quite attractive while it was converted. And again, you could drop it quite easily when you got off the bicycle. So again, another kind of um, really simple but really kind of thoughtful invention that's been put into um, a very kind of ordinary skirt. Clothing as a technology, why is it important to, to think of it in that way? Um, clothing, I think, is a really fascinating and ordinary, yet also um, – no, sorry, let me say that again um, – Clothing is a very mundane and ordinary, yet also fascinating artifact for understanding complex ideas about the changing nature of gender relations, about new technologies, about politics and ideas around kind of public space and mobility and citizenship and more. And I think psychware in particular provides a, a really interesting lens into all of these things. It's a really fascinating barometer of social and cultural change. And as a sociologist, I'm quite new to looking at clothing. I hadn't really done much of it until I was doing contemporary um, I was doing contemporary uh, cycle um, research and I was talking to people about, you know, the cultures of cycling where they were living and they kept on talking about what they were wearing and I was a bit like, no, I want to hear about infrastructure or I want to hear about policy and cycle wear just kept on coming up and it kept on being related to all of these things um, and women in particular would talk about how um, what they were wore sometimes elicited unwelcome responses from fellow road users, how um, how in some cases looking like a proper cyclist enabled them to carve out legitimate space on the road, how in other cases it didn't or they were constantly kind of trying to find appropriate cyclewear or had to hack or re, uh, remake kind of cyclewear because they felt like men had more range and certainly kind of higher technical spec clothing than they did. So it just seemed like it was something that was, again, this kind of creative and critical um, um, artifact that took a lot of uh, took a lot of focus for cyclists, and you could use that as a lens to kind of talk about all sorts of other things. So I started to think about cycleware as this socio technology that enables, constrains, and organizes bodies in different ways. You know, it kind of gives permission to people to do different things, and also a cat becomes a catalyst to um, adapt or remix or remake things in order to do the things that you want. 
And so by researching for me how early cyclists made their bodies mobile, how they made their bodies fit with these new technologies, and particularly for women who really didn't fit socially or materially at the time, um, reveals a lot about these social and physical barriers that they were navigating um, and pressing against and reconfiguring, and also, you know, really reveals fascinating, less-known tales of ingenious inventors and inventions that took place at the time. So you mentioned that you had difficulty uh, finding examples of these garments in the archives. Um, how does that reflect on how technologies can be hidden and and more difficult to find in histories or like or garments in particular? I guess. Um, I, I think. Um Garments in particular, of course, get used, and so they um, they can disappear a lot more easily. And particularly the garments that are well used, such as cycle wear. You know, many of us are aware of how you know garments you know develop holes quite quickly, and actually kind of disappear from use. And I think that's a very practical reason as to why they're not there. But in this case of women's kind of inventive forms of cycle wear, you know, um, there are many other reasons some of them kind of a little bit more political as to why they're not in these kind of histories you know um some um there are kind of issues about the fact that you know women's kind of invention hasn't been kind of highly valued as per gendered norms of the time so haven't been kind of recognized as being the kind of in incredibly important artifacts that they are for you know catalyzing you know significant kind of social change and so they haven't kind of been put into our archives in that way uh, or as is the case you know many of these were um, may have either not been just systematically erased they may have just been elements of them forgotten such as, you know, these are garments that you don't really know what you've got unless you're looking for them and you've associated with some of the stories. So as I've said about some of these inventions, they're quite, you know, subtle and yet still transformative, but you've got to know where those, you know, hooks go on these different buttons or how these cords thread through certain things. So in piecing together for me, you know, these stories and these fragments across these archives with these women's patterns and making the garments help to kind of piece together, you know, some of these stories that otherwise are incredibly kind of um, dispersed throughout the archives. And I think that is not only kind of, uh, you know, a, a practical problem, but it's been a political thing about just not considering these as being particularly important. And I think, you know, what I think these Another issue about this is the fact that women have tended to be kind of cast as partial actors in many historical narratives, and that's partially why their stories are kind of everywhere or not everywhere. So, or they've actually been kind of systematically written out of the records. You know, most of, you know, they've often been narrated as being caught up in kind of waves of technical change as like symbols of social upheaval, not catalysts of it. So they've never really been the kind of drivers of these stories. So I think what my research has been kind of highlighting is the important role that women have played in the early cycling and technical cultures, not as passive or ornamental bystanders, but as engineers and as designers and as radical feminist inventors. 
you know, this research really depicts women as being critically engaged, creative citizens, actively driving social and technical change and using their radical garments, their patents and their differently clad bodies to really push against, you know, these restrictions to their freedom of movement, you know, their, these kind of established forms of gendered citizenship and the stigma of urban harassment. Um, so claiming their designs not only through um, the making of these garments and um, putting, you know, different bodies, their own bodies into them in public space, um, but also through patenting became a very political act. And I think that's what I've been trying to kind of bring back out of these archives is kind of also a political act about reclaiming a lot of these feminist histories that otherwise have and easily kind of go unnoticed. So you you mentioned that what's in the archives is um, is definitely to a certain extent a a political and a social aspect. Um, do you do you have any speculation on the other aspects of techno of the history of technology that we might just be missing out on because no one thought to save it? Yes, lots. <laughs> I, have, I I think from this work, what I, I kept on doing was like, well, how how do we how do we not know about these amazing inventions, you know? And how many other kind of amazing inventions don't we know about? Um, you know, we should be asking. How do we ask different questions, you know, about our histories of technology and cycling? You know, how do we investigate the archives in different ways? You know, how do we um, kind of really engage with the gaps in these stories and fill them perhaps um, by um, pulling together a lot of these different fragments in different places. So, yes, I, I was just kept on asking these questions and trying to encourage more people to ask them about what else don't we know and how do we look for stories that in a way are less loud or triumphal or kind of easier to get access to, you know, that are perhaps more hidden in plain sight, which is what these ones are. So you mentioned earlier on about the the middle and upper class women. How does that aspect of the the social classes, uh, especially at the time, affect what you were able to research? Yes, I'm, I'm glad you raised this because I make a, a, a real point in the fact that the book is primarily about uh, middle and upper class women um, because they were really at the cutting edge of fashion. They had the money to embrace, you know, new technologies like the bicycle. Um, they had exposure to a whole range of new information such as media and ideas from travelers from new worlds. And they also had, importantly, the social and kind of the cultural capital to push against conventional social codes and norms about how women were meant to be in and act in public. Um, and so they were really doing things um, that were causing, you know, ripples and discussion and lots of debate. And this is certainly not saying that lots of other women in kind of lower, you know, um, lower middle and working classes weren't also doing this. There were certainly lots of women who were very physically active and some who were wearing um, menswear such as, you know, in more fishing or, or mining or other kinds of kind of industrial work for a very long time. However, they just didn't, they were differently visible in um, the public sphere. They were more likely invisible in those kind of actions. So I was really focusing at this point, even though there are amazing other stories to tell and to reclaim, but I was particularly focusing on this group who were causing kind of quite a lot of um, 
discombobulation in um, social uh, and political spheres in relation to invention and clothing and cycling. Changing tacks just a little bit, uh, you mentioned, we've, we've mentioned sort of throughout the interview that these were patented designs. So why uh, were women patenting much in the decades previous to this? And how does that sort of also talk about technology and the embrace of technology at the time? Um, or is that too many questions? No, no, that's good. You just made me think of something else as well that I'd like to say about um, patents are pivotal in the story because they're a permanent record of it, this delicate and material object. Mm. Can I say a bit more about that? Yes, go for it. And then I definitely want to answer that question. Um, but I just think this answers a bit more about what you were just asking about what isn't in our archives. So, yeah, so patents are really pivotal in the story because they're a permanent record of a very kind of delicate and, in a way, ephemeral, you know, material artifact. They really get us closer to people who lived over a century ago, what kind of concerned them, what they were interested in, what problems they saw that they could potentially kind of solve and their solutions. Um, and what I find really interesting about them is that they draw on the past to make claims on the present and imagine different futures. So they operate on these multiple different dimensions. And I think what's particularly good in terms of thinking about what's in and not in archives is that patent archives provide a really good record of women's inventions and inventiveness in ways that doesn't always um, um, you know, emerge in other kind of like narrative accounts in our technology and cycling um, histories. You know, they really give voice to a group often absent or silenced in the histories of technology and they're continuous. You know, the patent archives really show that women have been inventive for a very long period of time and continuously, you know, um, this is evidence of women continuously being creative inventors and continual kind of contributors to business and industry, even when they've, you know, what they've been doing has been undervalued or written out of other historic narratives. Um, so in terms of kind of just, you know, the, the patenting period, um, the mid-1890s is a remarkable period not only marked by a boom in cycling, but also a boom in patenting. Um, patent applications were growing steadily in the early 1890s, but there's a really remarkably big jump in the mid in, in about 1895, 1896, at the height of the cycling boom, you know, just over 20% kind of increase in patents. And primarily they were due to cycling inventions and not only by men. You know, this is a remarkable time of inventiveness, especially for and by women. Up until this time, women um, weren't really um, recognized as being um, inventors in any of the kind of annual patent uh, records that were uh, written in the patent um, patent office. Um, and then they suddenly became kind of statistically relevant in the 1890s. And there's a number of factors for this. You know, first of all, there was a Married Women's Property Act that came into force in the 1870s, but it wasn't until the 1880s that this included a women's right to legally own property in their own names. And, of course, women had been responsible for many innovations up until this time, but they were either, either went um, – 
but sorry, presumably women were recognised for many innovations up until this time, but they were either not recognised or were claimed by men in their lives. And also there was a Patent Reform Act that was passed in uh, the 1880s as well, with the just primary of aim of making um, the patenting process much more simple to enable many more ideas to many more people to patent ideas, um, to make it cheaper and faster and easier. So you didn't just have to have to be rich or really connected or have a, a patron in order to kind of patent an idea. You could actually be, you know, um, someone um, who happened to have a good idea and a small amount of money and um, you could actually then go and make a claim on it. So these combined with this excitement around cycling in the 1890s really fueled this Victorian inventive spirit. And so much so that cycling for women and particularly cycle wear became one of kind of the primary vehicles um, with which they kind of entered into the world of patenting at this time. So did any of the women make money from their patents? Yes, yes. Um, Alice Bygrave, um, the dressmaker from Brixton, must have known she was onto something pretty amazing because she not only patented her um, Bygrave quick change convertible skirt in um, Britain in 1895, but she also patented it in um, the US, in Canada, and in Switzerland not long afterwards. So she had four patents for this similar idea. And um, one of the things that's really hard to do when you're kind of tracing inventions in the archives is to um, is to keep a hold on it when it potentially when it gets picked up and commercialized because very often it gets renamed as something else and it's in very easily you hit a dead end in your research but this is not the case with Alice because Jaeger, the British fashion house, which is still in existence today, um, saw um, a great potential in this and um, called it the Bygrave Quick Change Convertible Skirt and promoted it um, all around the UK and England and in Scotland. Um, it was also sold in Australia. Um, in Sydney and in Melbourne. You went through and constructed these skirts. I mean, particularly the, the Bygrave convertible skirt. It has pulleys. It has weights. Um, I, I'm an engineer. I found this thoroughly entertaining. Um, <laughs> so, so how complicated was that one to build? Quite complicated. We had to do so many different iterations of that. We made, um, we drew pictures of it, first of all. We made small-scale um, models of it in material and paper clips and staples and things. Then we made um, uh, full-sized uh, mock-ups um, in, sorry, full-sized twirls in a light kind of calico material. Then we made um, a, a garment out of um, a full-scale but in a kind of similar weighted wool and then we made the final garment. Um, so we had many iterations of many of these, but that was perhaps one of the most complicated ones. And you mentioned earlier about sort of interviewing the, the garments. So what does the act of uh, constructing and wearing these garments, how does that help the research and the understanding of the t technologies at the time and the social structures around them? Well, um, I started to really look at patents as experiments in problem solving, you know, and, and by actually mm -hmm. engaging directly in that, 
we were also doing what I think the inventors were doing as well. So we were actually replicating a lot of their processes because they describe the problems they're attempting to solve and their solutions in careful and visual details. And one way to understand that is, of course, through te- you know analysis of the text and images. Another is to follow their step-by-step instructions um, to replicate their ideas. And there's a long history of doing this in the history of, you know, and this approach in social sciences and the history of technology and food sciences. You know, some people cook from archives some people reconstruct iconic experiments such as like faraday experiments and really what it shows is you can learn a lot through making that differs to just reading a document Um, because you spend and particularly because these are garments you spend time with and also in the garments like our bodies were really important in all of this we're constantly putting these things on in order to make them work because they really don't work well off the body the body is needed arms and waists and legs are needed in order for these things to actually work and I found that we were developing understandings through practice through these iterations, through the mistakes and the tangents throughout that process that otherwise I don't think would have been so discernible from just, you know, engaging with these things from more of a surface level. And also fundamentally because these inventions are articles of clothing, they're designed to work with and on the body. So by making and wearing the garments, we started to think about them as kind of dynamic three-dimensional arguments that we could then investigate the patterns in very different ways. So um, I, that's how I was thinking about interviewing them. I was just like, well, what, what is happening here? Why is this happening here? What else could be happening here? What, what um, is emerging? Even We started to answer questions we didn't even know to ask, I think, which is one of the really wonderful things about doing this kind of practice work. You really end up sometimes very different places than you expect. One of the things that gets mentioned in your book that I I wanted to uh, talk about since we've got a little bit of time, um, and anyone who regularly wears men's clothing is probably going to wonder why I'm making a big deal out of this, but what were pockets like at the time mm. and and how how were pockets changing? Pockets are fascinating um, political and gendered objects, and they have been for a very long time. You know, although small and mundane and easily overlooked, um, they play a really important role in the construction of mobile bodies and in gender relations. Um, um, And so pockets and moreover their absence, even in kind of contemporary women's fashion, have long held, you know, powerful practical and symbolic value. You know, they speak to roles in responsibility and to power relations. You know, men's pockets are often on show and have been regularly on show, you know, and they're as symbols of power and of property. But for women, um, they're more often hidden or absent. You know, women have more often been considered property themselves rather than having the capacity to own property. So the number of pockets, um, and lots of people have written about the history of pockets, you know, at different periods of time, but I've been looking at them particularly in kind of the 1890s, partially because my patentees talk about them quite a lot and they emerge in a lot of the um, uh, discussions that you know the dress reformers were having, having, and the women's rights emancipists were having, just about you know um, 
you know, the increasing kind of mobility and independence of women really speak to the importance and role of pockets in their clothing. You know, they become particularly critical in periods of increased mobility and independence, such as around the introduction of, you know, new mobility technologies like the bicycle. Um, and um, so we can tell a lot about changing ideas of society by examining, you know, who has pockets, where they are, um, the kinds of pockets, um, and what kind of inventions they inspired. So the patent archive is filled with a lot of pocket patents over the last um, century, and they really do speak to the problems that people were identifying and how they saw pockets as solving a lot of those. Wait, like patents specifically for pocket designs? Yes. Patent, oh my pocket patents, yes, throughout the archive. Oh my, what, sort um, of, what sort of inventions were happening in the pocket world then? Well, there's lots of pockets around you, but building clothing for cycling, um, for, you know, catching trains and boats. Around the turn of the century, um, there's a lot of discussion around pockets in relation to pickpocketing or trying to prevent it. So, you know, these issues around sociality and public space and mass industrialization meant that more people were um, in closer proximity in public space. So the middle and upper classes were, you know, there was a, pickpocketing was rife. And so there's a lot of patents to prevent pickpocketing for both men and women's clothes that were um you know they've got all there's all sorts of ways of doing that but there might be about the way in which you would you would sew a pocket that has a particular kind of entry point that only the wearer can gain access not a little hand from a different direction or they might have little snap enclosures that you would you know, prevent some hand from going into it or perhaps just snap on that hand and different locking mechanisms. Um, around the wars, for example, pockets become important in terms of combination clothing, kind of preparing citizens for scarcity of materials and the mm -hmm. unknown. Um, there's also lots of pockets that have been designed and redesigned about new digital technologies, you know, um, mm -hmm. most recently – um, I think there's just a lot of clothes that have, you know, um, pockets kind of added to them so you can carry your mobile phone. But more recently, pockets have been addressing concerns about radiation emitting from these kind of technologies. So how do you build a pocket that actually prevents you from getting from the threat of the technology as opposed to the threat of of things outside of the body? So I think they really bring to light around ideas around, you know, different mobilities about fears or the promise or the threat of new technologies and they kind of signal different ideas around safety and danger in public space and bodies so pocket patterns are really kind of fascinating huh i had i had no idea that there were patents specific for pockets but i guess even today you think about things like um uh passports and credit cards with chips in them and you know i have a pocket for my passport that blocks RFID and, and all those sorts of things as well. Well, exactly. Yeah. Pockets. Pockets are, um, I think it's when you look at the mundane uh, technologies and a pocket is a technology of carrying things, but also protecting in different ways. It can really um, provide insights into the things that we think are important or we're fearful of or um, that we want to change or imagine different ways of being. Well, thank you so much for joining me and for your time and the book, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Fantastic. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed talking about all of this. Um, 
with you. You can learn more about Dr. Youngnickel and find links to information about the Bikes and Bloomers research and her other research at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. There you can also find past episodes, our social media links, and learn how to support the show. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 